Um, <clears throat> I'm telling our guest speaker that I'm not an upfront person and, or a very good speaker, but this very short introduction, I, and I think I mentioned it last week in class, um, Rebecca, my daughter Rebecca Benny recommended Chelsea to come speak to us. She is an advanced nurse practitioner. Uh, she is on staff at Lipscomb. She has experienced a lot of what we're going to be talking about, um, caregiver stress, self-care. Today she's experienced it. She's going to teach us some things about that. And so Chelsea Harris, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me. When she said she was going to mic me at first, I, I definitely do not need a mic. Um, I have, I'm actually um, really grateful and thankful I met Becca at Lipscomb, and uh, she's been really amazing in my life so far. And so I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm super excited to share with you some of the things that I have. I know I only have just a few minutes. It feels like I'm going to be like taking a deep breath and then going, because usually on these types of things, I teach for two and three hours at different conferences and things like that. So um, if you have further questions afterwards, or you want to just sit down and visit at some point, um, I'd be happy to do that. But um, I am Chelsea Harris. I am a family nurse practitioner, have been a nurse for 19 years, a nurse practitioner since 2008, and have been in nursing education for the last uh, 10 years. And I am the Associate Director of Nursing at Lipscomb. And so um, super, super awesome to be here. So one thing in my research, the word, this concept of compassion fatigue, um, that's kind of what I speak on everywhere I go. And I just spoke at a faith community um, nursing conference. It was an international conference a few weeks ago on this training the trainers, basically. But I understand that today I, that this audience is basically um, maybe caregiving for older adult parents or a child that you're taking care of or, or a neighbor or another family member. And so I hope that I've geared it towards you today. But compassion fatigue we're going to talk about, and I'm going to have to go back and forth to show you but the main point is just because we are faithful people I think sometimes we tell ourselves that we're exempt from some things and oh we can't experience that or we never will because of our faith but that's just not true sometimes we either get on the verge of experiencing something um, but that um, and we may even actually experience it but as every good teacher does I have to have a purpose right and the purpose is basically to just open dialogue with you today about this concept, to give you some uh, tips and things to help you maybe overcome it or prevent it, and um, offer uh, a little bit of a story format for you. But I was kind of waiting on everybody to get in, and then I might, if it's okay with you, I usually like to start things off with a prayer. So I would love to pray over you this morning, and um, then we'll go ahead and move forward. Welcome. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just praise you and I thank you for um, who you are. I thank you for your compassion for us. It's never ending. Your unconditional love that you just pour out upon us all the time, Lord. We are not worthy, but you continuously give it. And Father, I thank you so much for each person that's in this room. I do not know their story, but you do. And so, Father, I pray that you would just uh, be with us this morning, that you would give us hearts and minds to hear and listen to what you have to say, Lord. Speak through me. Speak through these individuals, God. 
Thank you so much for people who are eager to learn more and to know more about you and how to care for people better, especially those we love the most in our families. Bless this uh, room of individuals. Help us to walk forward in faith. And we do praise you and thank you for everything that we have. And we ask that you would just um, anoint us, Lord, that we could do your work and your will and carry it out as you would have us to do. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So again, another good thing that teachers do is give objectives, right? This is all boring stuff. I know it is. We're going to get to some good stuff in a minute. But boring, we've got to define compassion fatigue. You've got to know what it is, right? And then we have to recognize uh, some of the signs and symptoms. So you know how to, if you're experiencing it, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm experiencing this and I've got to figure out how to get over it or to... Um, uh, prevent it and then discussing some of those techniques so next slide forewarning a little bit boring but it is actually um, a definition that I devised uh, back in 2012 and published in the Journal of Christian Nursing and it is uh, compassion fatigue is basically the emotional and physical and spiritual result of chronic self-sacrifice I love that they're taking pictures <laughs> and or prolonged exposure to difficult situations that renders a person unable to love, nurture, care for, or empathize with another suffering. So as a nurse, if I'm experiencing this, I'm experiencing literally the fatigue of something that's the very heart of nursing. And as people who are followers of Christ and believers in the body of Christ, we have to tell ourselves, how do we continue to have compassion in our carnal selves, right? And so I had this theory when I went into my doctoral program that without the love of the Heavenly Father, I don't have the capacity or the ability to unconditionally love another human being. It's impossible. I can conditionally love them, but I can't unconditionally love them. And so how do I show compassion day in and day out as I give and give and give of myself without Him? Try explaining that in a secular institution. <laughs> there was a whole lot of research and a whole lot of convincing that had to go into it, but um, we can talk about that at another time. But I know that you all are giving and giving and giving and giving and giving of yourselves to people you love the most, and sometimes it gets really, really hard. And so um, I'm going to tell you a little story here. I'm going to introduce you to Daniel Lee. I'm going to move where I can fix this. Daniel Lee Boone Babson. He was born November the 14th, 1955 in Hutchinson, Kansas. He was a son. He was a husband, a father, and Boone had four children. He also had seven grandchildren, and he had one grandchild on the way. Now this is Boone, and I wouldn't say the prime of his life, but he was a pretty pretty large strapping man, someone who we all thought was invincible and would never fail. He had his own car salvage business. He worked on cars for a living, pulled car parts, took care of all those things. You can see his hand, his fingers were so big, if I tried to hold his hand, I couldn't even get my fingers to open that wide. I thought that he was the greatest thing ever. This is a picture of he and his wife uh, with um, their daughter, one of their daughters, the son, a whole family there, 
And then I don't know if you recognize this because my hair's a little curly right now, but that would be me. <laughs> Boone was my daddy and the grandchild that he had on the way was my daughter. And unfortunately, he never got to meet her. He never got to meet Hanalee Faith Harris. And the reason why is because, let me share something with you. My dad was an alcoholic my entire life. I don't remember or recall many moments in my life that he was not drinking. Now that doesn't make him a terrible person or a bad man or anything like that. I won't say anything negative about him. But he destroyed his body with alcohol. He destroyed everything about it. He developed diabetes. And he was in denial for seven years telling everyone that he did not have diabetes and he was not going to take the medication for it. And therefore, when I finally rushed him to the ER one day with an over 800 blood glucose, I don't know if you know what normal is, but we usually like to keep it between 70 and 110. So he went like this for years and years and years. And because of those high blood glucose uh, levels, because of his high blood pressure, because of his cholesterol and the things that he'd done to destroy his body, he went into renal failure. Kidneys began to fail. Vision began to go. He went blind in his right eye and almost blind in his left eye. He was on dialysis three days a week, five hours a day. And he was 58 years old. If I showed you this picture, does that look like a 58-year-old man? Not so much. He went from my dad, who was this invincible person in my life, who owned his own business, was so successful, had so much going for him, to completely and totally dependent on everyone around him. You can see in the uh, upper right chest he had tubes coming out and until his permanent fistula where they could do dialysis was ready to go, he had to have that hanging out of his chest for months and months on end. And I had to go over there every single day and take care of him. And every day that I would go over to his home, in fact, I moved him from Arkansas to Missouri just so he could be closer to me. I would go and I would clean his apartment, scrub his floors, make sure they were bleached because everyone knows that with diabetes, one of the things that can happen is they lose feeling in their feet. You hurt yourself, you get an ulcer, you get a blister, you don't realize it, infection happens, and then inevitable things begin to continue. And so I would go over there and I would scrub the floor and I would bleach the floor and I would take out his trash and I would help him with the bills and I would fix his meals and I would actually assist my 58-year-old dad to take a bath. Talk about humiliation for him and trying to separate myself from nurse and daughter. And so I did this day in and day out and day in and day out, and I gladly did it. But I'll remind you that this was a man who was an alcoholic his whole life, who also had a tendency to have um, moments of rage and who would 
curse at me in one breath and love me in the next, yell at me and call me names and ask me where his food was and where I had been and what mile marker I was on and why wasn't I there yet. And I'll remind you that even the person you might love on this earth the most can sometimes take the biggest toll on you. And without the love of the Heavenly Father, you cannot continue to give like that. And yet I adored him and held him in the highest regard and loved him immensely. And then, fast forward a little bit. He'd been diagnosed with renal failure for about a year. He'd been doing dialysis. I'd been serving him seven days a week, 365 days a year, making sure that he was taken care of to the best of my ability, washing his feet. And I got pregnant. And during pregnancy, I had already lost, not during, but I had already lost two babies prior to that. And so this was just a huge thing for our family. I've been married 14 and a half years right now, and my baby is four years old. So that tells you how long we waited and prayed. And so I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize this baby. And yet every morning when I woke up, I would vomit and I would vomit from the time that I got up until the time I went to bed but my daddy still needed me. But because of the nausea and because of all the things that I had going on, working full time, teaching in a nursing program, working as a nurse practitioner part time, writing a book, so many things that I know many of you have in your lives too. I couldn't get over there every day. It just wasn't possible. I was wearing out. I would get the phone call, where are you at? Why are you not here? I need you to do this, I need you to do that. And I started to feel myself going, oh, I can't do this anymore. Dad, can't you do something for yourself? I got a baby that's growing inside of me, oftentimes having to go to the hospital and get transfusions because uh, of, of fluids because I was vomiting so much and couldn't keep anything down. And I was worn out. I started to get to the point where I felt myself becoming a little bit numb. Dad, just do it yourself. I would get snappy and I felt myself starting to have headaches and extraordinary fatigue and that was aside from pregnancy. And I thought, what is wrong with you? Why are you losing your ability to care for your own dad? And so I stopped and I thought, Okay, this, this is not me. And yet, you might be in this place too where you're caring and giving and giving and giving and giving. And maybe your parent or whoever you're caring for is kind to you and appreciates you and loves you. And that's wonderful, but it still doesn't mean that you're not exhausted. It still doesn't mean that you can sometimes feel like, oh my goodness, I don't have anything left to give. I need some help. And that's okay. And so I looked at my dad and since my daily visits went to weekly, his floors weren't clean anymore, trash all over the house, even gnats would be flying around and flies. And I know that sounds disgusting. And I began to, to blame myself. I've got to get over there. Well, he started to develop ulcers on his feet. And if you can see, I don't know if you can see in this picture here, but his feet were terrible. Um, 
actually had dying necrotic flesh on his feet. And he got an infection. And the infection went from his feet into his bloodstream. And he became septic. And he went into the hospital on a Monday. And he was in the ICU until Friday. And on Friday, September the 26th, 2014, my 32nd birthday, I was 14 weeks pregnant, I got the phone call that my dad had decided to leave the hospital against medical advice. Yet again, that stubborn personality, oh my goodness, you're wearing me out, Dad. So I left work. And I met his friend who had picked him up and brought him home. And I lectured him for a while. And I called social services and I used every resource I had. And I had exhausted myself to try to get him to go back. And I finally threw my hands in the air and said, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. My husband said, it's your birthday. Let's go eat. And then we'll come back. And in the middle of dinner, about 45 minutes after leaving, I felt something in my spirit say something's wrong. Got a phone call less than four seconds later from my mom that my dad was gone. And they'd been working on him for 45 minutes. And so on my 32nd birthday, September the 26th, 2014, my 58-year-old dad went to heaven. He had given his life to Christ. He still had horrible addiction that he was trying to overcome. But a year prior, he had given his life to the Lord. So that is the happy part. But I beat myself up and I thought, what in the world? Is it because you didn't go over there? Is it because you had lost all your love and your compassion for him? Is it because I'm just going through in my mind all these things and yet it was none of those? Sure, I was stressed, and I had compassion stress, if you will. And I was fatigued physically just from everything that was going on. But I hadn't quite lost it because I still had the ability to have emotion. I still had the ability to, to nurture in some way, and I recognized it. And I said, I'm going to change. And I'm going to make sure that other people can feel empowered and know when to recognize those things. And so... Why do I tell you this and why do I think it matters? Because here I am, oh my goodness, I've got three degrees in nursing. I've been doing this forever. I'm supposed to be this compassionate, awesome person, right? Nurses are supposed to be awesome, Jane. <laughs> We're not supposed to experience this. But things like this don't discriminate. They don't discriminate no matter how faithful you are. They don't discriminate no matter what your job title is, no matter what you do. The more and more and more you're exposed to trauma, the more and more and more that you give of yourself all the time, it exponentially weighs on you. And it's okay to experience this, but it's not okay to experience it alone. And it's not okay to bottle it all in and to keep letting it happen. And so I just have this up here that you can read. I don't have to read it to you, and I saw some taking pictures. But let's talk about what we do. Now, most of the time, 
when I teach kind of things on this, I'm teaching healthcare providers or, or I'm doing 10 steps for a nursing home facility and their managers and how to deal with this and I tell a whole different story because I tell it from a caregiver point of view. But this still is very relevant to you as well. The first thing that we have to do, and I was just talking to Jane about this before everyone walked in, is we got to talk about it. First of all, we have to acknowledge the fact that we can fatigue of our compassion at some point, or we can be stressed and feel like we don't want to be compassionate anymore, or our, our minds and our souls feel numb to caring. So we have to acknowledge it exists and call it what it is and then address it. So in, in the other kinds of meetings that I teach, I'll tell them, put it on meeting agendas. But after talking to Jane, it may need to be on church agendas. We need to talk about this. There are probably more people in your congregation than you even know that are struggling with caring for older adult parents, special needs children, family members outside of you know, the immediate family, some even caring for neighbors. So acknowledging it and talking about it and, and normalizing it so people don't feel ostracized like, oh my goodness, am I the only one? I can't do this because I'm a Christ follower. I can't do this because I'm supposed to be this amazing person that loves Jesus with all my heart. I can't be experiencing this. Not true. Not true at all. So acknowledging it and normalizing it and talking about it is the first thing. And you have to have a supportive environment to do that. And I think Jane has done an amazing job of, of at least saying, hey, everyone, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about self-care and, and, and our congregation and the things that you're going through. And so bringing it up and, and um, visiting with others about it and creating an environment that's nourishing for you to do that. Where am I at on time, Jane? You're fine. Okay. That's okay. The next thing is pay attention. And by pay attention, I mean pay attention to yourself, but also pay attention to the people around you. Pay attention to the family members that are also serving your parents or your loved ones or that are in the church sitting next to you. If they used to have this joyful spirit, they walked in every day and they're smiling and they're excited to see you and they have this personality that is just uh, lights up a room and then all of a sudden or even gradually you start to notice they're a little more withdrawn or you're feeling yourself wanting to withdraw or withdrawing. Maybe you're attending church services or you and you start to back off from that or you call in sick to work more or you notice that your colleague is calling in sick to work more. You start having headaches, GI upset, physical fatigue. Sometimes this is emotional and spiritual stress that you're experiencing and you don't realize it. And you may go get Prilosec or whatever your doctor prescribes because of this. Oh, you've got, you've got acid reflux. That's why you have GI upset. Or, oh, we'll just make sure that you can take Motrin every now and again for your headaches and not getting to the very root of what's happening. So ask yourself, what am I doing on the daily? Am I giving too much? Am I being filled back up both with the Spirit as well as fellowship with fellow believers? People who are also experiencing the same thing as you? 
This is the most important. If you don't get anything out of today, the most important thing, and I would challenge you to do it in your personal, professional, and your congregational life here is to form a support system. This picture, those are my people. I'll tell you, this girl right here, first cousin, best friends, eight months apart in age, both advanced practice nurses with doctorates in nursing. Not only is she one of my personal support system people that I can pick up the phone and trust her with my life. I know that if I tell her something and I don't want the rest of the world to hear it, she's not going to speak a word of it. She also is there for me to encourage me to tell me, you know, hey, let's talk about this. Let's, let's listen to each other. But also, she has that professional side. She has that um, relatedness or understanding of where I'm coming from in the nursing world as well. So, personal relationship. I don't care who it is. You can have one, two, or ten. I probably would say one or two is about uh, what you can find on someone on the intimate level that you can talk to and that you can share with about what you're feeling. I would challenge you that one of those people be someone who can relate to your situation though. This room may be filled with people that would be very good at that. I don't know. I didn't ask all those questions to find out. We don't have a lot of time. But finding someone who has gone through or is going through what you're going through so that you can talk about it at that level of understanding. Jane being in the nursing profession, and there may be others of you in this room as well in the healthcare profession who've been in this a long time, who've dealt with it, can talk about and address how have you dealt with giving and giving and giving and still have the ability to continue to give. Making sure that those people trust and love. I love this picture here. That's my nephew and that's my little girl, Hanley Faith. And... Um, I just thought it was cute to show you that because that's the depth of relationship you need. That when you walk into a room and you need something from that support system, that they will embrace you no matter what. Unashamedly, non-judgmentally. I've got only a couple of more steps, but this one, physical nourishment, I mean, good grief. We all know this, right? I could preach to the choir here about physical nourishment. I think that's cute. My little Hanley has a muddy pie. You know, sometimes you just need to go out in the sunshine and make a little muddy pie for your nourishment, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have you eat that necessarily. But a diet. Think about when you're actually taking care of your family or your loved one. Oftentimes we neglect ourselves. Or we'll just run through the fast food place or a, you know, drive through to, to get what we can to just put something in our tummies to get us to the next step. But what happens is if you don't have a balanced diet, if you're eating things high in carbs, you're going to just load yourself up, pancreas kicks in, and boom, you crash because the glucose levels, and we could talk about that all day, but you don't have even the physical energy to give if you're not nourishing yourself with fruits and vegetables and antioxidants and those kinds of things. And exercise, good grief, 20 minutes of exercise, 20 minutes of getting your heart rate up of exercise is literally like taking an antidepressant pill. Research supports it. Increases the serotonin and dopamine in the brain, makes you have uh, more energy as well as um, actual happiness, if you will. 
And then over here, I don't know if y'all have been, I'm not advertising, but that top golf place over in Nashville, <laughs> if you're stressed, I tell you, it's incredible. Lipscomb took us out there and I hit some golf balls and that's a good way to take out stress. But truly, exercise um, is a part of that nourishment. My favorite thing, emotional and spiritual nourishment. Now this is where my research comes in. And so I said, as I was going through all this, and I could tell you a whole other story about my grandma uh, passing away in a nursing home. Uh, due to compassion fatigue of the employees. It was tragedy. But I wanted to encourage and nourish the nursing assistants, not the licensed professionals, because they have the brunt of the work, which a lot of times is what you're doing as you serve mm -hmm. your loved ones or you're visiting nursing homes and long-term care facilities to see your loved ones and you're watching these people. And so I had that theory. If you love Lord, the Lord, and oh, sorry for the microphone thing. Um, and he tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches. And if we are plugged into him, basically that, that without him, we are nothing, but he is the source of life. Right. And so I had this theory and I, but the scientific world doesn't listen. They're not going to pay attention to that. Who are you? What do you want? So I did research and I looked at the relationship between compassion, fatigue and daily spiritual experience. And shocker, not to us as believers, but as daily spiritual experience went up, compassion fatigue went down, right? I just have a little graphic there. But it was, to me, it was just a no-brainer, but I had to have research to back it up. So now God has afforded many opportunities to, to write and speak and publish and things like that because I do have all kinds of data. But daily spiritual experience doesn't just mean, oh, I go to church or I pray every now and again. True daily spiritual experience is constant communion with the Lord. Constant communion and dialogue and conversation and relationship and being still in His presence and listening and being filled up and being around fellow believers and finding that He is your source and that you can see the divine creation around you at all times. And so this instrument that I found was the one that best encompassed that. And so I would challenge you all of these things emotionally cut yourself some slack. I was so mad at myself for getting upset at my dad and saying, I just can't do this anymore. I don't care. Dad, do it yourself. Get someone else. I'm exhausted but cut yourself some slack. It's okay to feel that way for a brief moment. Then you've got to tighten up your bootstraps, fill yourself back up and go back so that you can give again. But you can't give from an empty soul and you can't give from empty emotions or feeling sorry for yourself, those kinds of things. Hey, been there, done that. But you can't give from that dryness and that emptiness. Be flexible. This is preaching to the choir. I'm on a time crunch all the time. I got this to do and that to do, and I got to be here at certain times, and I got a four-year-old, and I got a husband that travels all the time, and oh, take a deep breath, right? Sometimes you just got to let some things go. Whatever's not important, and this is my motto in life. If it doesn't have an eternal significance, 
I'm not going to be worried about it that much anymore. If it can't change my eternity, I'm not going to let it stress me out that bad. And so I think that kind of changed my mindset a little bit as I was approaching these things is, if it can't change my eternity, I'm not wasting my time on it. Now that doesn't mean you can't still take your kids and grandkids to gymnastics every now and again, but it might mean you miss one or two. It might mean that you can't host everything you want to host at your house all the time because you've got to figure out time to fill yourself back up. But cut yourself some slack. Be flexible and have boundaries. Learn how to say no. That's a good one, the power of saying no. The last thing, I don't know how much time I have, you can tell me, but the last thing that I would say is if you visit, I know many of you have probably visited at least somebody, a loved one in a nursing home facility, or you're visiting family members right now on the daily. Love and encourage those people that take care of them. That'll fill your soul up too because they not only have your family and your loved one that they're caring for and that they're giving and giving and giving, but they have everyone's. And they may be at home taking care of their parent with Alzheimer's or dementia and coming back to work that next day and taking care of someone else's family that has the same thing. And that traumatic recollection and the continuous exposure to that is wearing them out. And so sometimes, I don't know if y'all knew this or not, but in a nursing home, a resident spends 28 minutes a day with a licensed professional. That's all. 28 minutes a day. 1,412 minutes are spent with unlicensed assistive personnel, CNAs, nursing assistants, and or alone. So all my research is in the CNA population, the unlicensed assistive personnel, and they need you. They need you to encourage them. And let me tell you what it does for your soul when you encourage someone that's taking care of your loved one. It changes things. And when you put into perspective what they're doing on the daily and then you recognize, okay, I can do this. I got this. But it opens up the dialogue when you talk to them and you encourage and, and it opens dialogue for you as, as congregation members here. I don't know what you're planning to do with all of this, but I would really challenge you here at Otter Creek to, to have a support group together. I don't know what that looks like for you, but... If you have a support group that you, maybe there's five of you, maybe there's 10 of you and then it begins to exponentially grow, but you come and you talk and you love and encourage one another. And maybe your mission is to go out and love and encourage the CNAs and the nurses working in nursing homes. And that helps to refill and refuel your spirit as you go out and serve your parents or your children or your loved ones that you're taking care of right now. So I don't know what your plans are for the future, but I would highly recommend trying to get a support group together here um, that you could be that for one another and then you could go out and you could serve your community because the Lord tells us, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. First of all, you gotta be together to do that, right? Can't just come together one day a week or two days a week um, and, and listen and be fed from the message, but you've gotta feed one another, especially like-mindedness and taking care of these. And then, one of my favorite scriptures out of John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How many times, and again, I'm guilty, have we walked into a nursing home and immediately we begin to judge? 
this is not clean enough and this looks ridiculous and I can't believe that they're out there on a smoke break and da 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 and I mean I can just this is me I, I've done this before rather than coming in and using our words and our actions to build them up and to love one another last thing my Nana the one I was talking about that I usually tell the story she actually died tragically in a nursing home, fell out of the bed, fractured C3, 4, and 5 vertebrae in her neck, gash in her head. I could tell the whole story, but I won't. Four inches by three inches in the right parietal region. Um, well, it was kind of parietal and temporal here. Emergency med flighted to the nearest neurotrauma center. Had to have neurotrauma surgery, and 72 hours later, she died. I was bitter. I was angry. I was her power of attorney. I got the phone call and I had watched him treat her with aloofness and numbness and be fatigued of their compassion. But instead of getting angry and doing something in that fashion, I said, I want to do something that changes lives. I don't want this to happen to anyone else's family ever again. And so that's how and why you'll see I've, I've written a, a couple of books. I've done some things like that. I speak all over to try to encourage people in different audiences and different kinds of people so that hopefully just one person can be changed. But these CNAs, they work hard and they're poorly compensated. And if you're visiting, use your words to build them up. Use your actions to build them up and find out how you can pour into them so they can continue to pour into your loved ones. And so the last picture I have here, that's the very last picture that I have of my daddy. He was doing so good. That was Tuesday, the Monday after he went in the hospital. His glasses were really thick like Coke bottles because he couldn't see real well. His hands shook so bad he could barely hold his phone, so he was holding it with two hands. And my husband was at his bedside and took that picture while I was at work because, again, I couldn't be there every second to let me know he was doing okay. But the Lord had other plans. So anyway, I know this is just, it feels like I told Jane, I, can't, I don't know what I can do in 30 minutes. I feel like it's like a fire hydrant to tell you things and just give you some short things that you can walk out of here. But if you don't take anything else, I want you to take that point number three on the support system piece. And if you don't have one, find one. Ask someone. Look around the room. Go into your congregation. Someone is feeling what you feel. Someone's battling what you're battling. And someone wants to walk alongside you. So, questions? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yes. Um, you have a brother. I do. How Two of them. Two How much did they help? None. Was there any? Yeah. How do you deal as a caregiver? That is a <clears throat> So the day that my dad went into the hospital that Monday, I was at work. I have a 29-year-old brother and I also have a 38-year-old brother. Um, the 38-year-old is a half-brother and he was adopted as a young child, so I didn't see him for many, many years. But my, my younger brother was always around. 
Um, he and I are like night and day. Uh, he is an unbeliever and um, very vocal about his unbelief. And the day I got the phone call that daddy was really ill and he just needed some nausea medicine and he couldn't see well enough to get it. I had left it in the cabinet for him and put all his little pills out like he was supposed to have them. And my brother was busy with his uh, friend and his son at the park and he didn't want to leave to go help dad. And so I left work. I said, I'm coming. And I covered everything at work and said, y'all, I gotta go. Um, and I went in and my father was vomiting uh, blood into the sink and he had, it, it was not a pretty sight. And I was so angry and so bitter at my brother that I picked up the phone and in my bitterness, I called and I said, you ought to be ashamed. <laughs> my carnal human self came out and he rushed over. And when he saw how ill he was, it, like, it kind of dawned on him, I think. I can't believe I've done this. But there was years and years of hurt in my family that wasn't easily repaired. So I think I have a, I don't know what your family looks like, um, but my dad and my brother did not get along super well. Um, and although my dad was very, he wasn't a nice man. Honestly, I've said this my whole life. I really believe that, that God took his hands and placed them over my ears and put it over my eyes and put it around my heart to shield me from so many things. And if you ask my husband what it was, it was daily forgiveness. Daily forgiveness. And if I didn't forgive my brother daily and I didn't forgive my dad daily, I would never have been able to do that. And so I can't, I can't ever go out and give any kind of a talk about compassion fatigue without Jesus. It's not possible. Um, but you can only be accountable for you. And as a caregiver, I know you want to employ your family members to help. But I think sometimes you exhaust yourself more trying to motivate them and get them to help. And it just builds up bitterness and anger between you and them rather than if you just try to find a new support system and, uh, and get encouragement other places. But I think you'll wear yourself out even more just trying to convince them of, of what you need and what your family needs. And that's what I found just in my own personal experience. But does that kind of answer? Anybody else? Just a question about your, I guess your grandmother, Nana. Nana. Um, the nursing home, I guess, accident she had, was that at night? Oh, I'll tell you. I could tell you the story. Was she trying to exit? That's what I, I usually tell that whole story, and I'll do it real quick. What, what happened was there was a, an initiative several years ago in nursing home facilities to remove side rails because they are considered a restraint, okay? And so they, were, they had this big initiative. They removed the side rails, and on her particular bed, it was an older model bed, and so it had the kind of metal pieces that stick up, and the side rail went down in the sides, okay? And what they had done is they had removed the side rail, but they failed to remove the metal pieces the side rail was in. And I don't know, they, you know the drill of there's short staffing and there's all these excuses and things like that. But for the most part, I mean, you saw there's another advanced practice nurse on that screen that was also, that was also her Nana. And we were there daily, every single day watching and paying attention. And there were comments and things made of, you know, who cares? It's just Naomi and she's just got to go to the bathroom. Well, my Nana had gone into the nursing home because she had fractured a hip and she was there for rehabilitation. She was not there to remain. 
She was 84 years old. She still cooked her own meals. She still took care of herself, and she actually took care of my daddy. So she was very capable, very cognitively aware, knew that she couldn't get out of bed on her own, knew that she needed, to help, needed help to go to the bathroom, but she couldn't get up. She presses her call light, no one came. She presses her call light, and no one came. And she watched them walk by and kind of shrug her off and make snide remarks and comments. And you know that the, the actual... Um, the call light is attached to the wall, usually on a cord, and so my Nana was a tough lady, and she grabbed a hold of it and started banging it on the side of the bed. Thirty minutes passed by, nothing. She's hollering out, someone help me, I've got to go potty, and no one came. This was at five o'clock in the morning. About an hour goes by, and no one has still come, and she's banging that call light, and she drops it. She goes to reach down to pick up the call light and she falls out of the bed and she fractures her neck, C3, 4, and 5, and gashes her head on the side of one of those metal pieces that were sticking out of the bed. And I got the phone call that morning to come uh, meet at the nearest neurotrauma center. And so it was part neglect, part the fact that the majority of the people taking care of our loved ones in nursing homes are unlicensed poorly compensated, giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, and they really, they only have 70 clock hours of training. I don't know if y'all know that, but the national standard is 70 clock hours of training for an unlicensed assistive personnel, less than two 40-hour work weeks, and they're taking care of our, pa our parents, our, our people, my patients, my residents, and they're doing the hard work. And so that's why I was saying, and I challenge you to speak life into them, to speak words of affirmation and encouragement over them, and to try as, as the people who want them to take care of your loved ones instead of tearing down, to try to build up. So that's why I just, I made it my goal in life. I've written a children's book, Hannah Visits Nana in the Nursing Home even, to try to help encourage the youngest generation to start loving and recognizing that people that reside in nursing homes are valuable and that they, it's not a scary place and that they can go in and bring joy. And there's research behind that too. But, um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of how it happened. And that was in July 31st, 2012, uh, when she passed away, and I lost my dad two years later. So, you're welcome. You know, what, what can take all this to an even a, a more difficult level if you as a caregiver are already suffering on your own physically because of Absolutely. an illness or something is wrong with you, that takes all this even to another level if you as a caregiver are already Absolutely. suffering with something absolutely and I think that I didn't have an illness per se um, when I was doing that but I was I was 14 weeks pregnant and I mean night and day vomiting couldn't keep anything down and so so that physical illness mm -hmm. and that physical pregnancy is not a debilitation but the vomiting was um, or if you have an autoimmune disorder a lot of people suffering from things like that rheumatoid arthritis pain um, chronic pain and then you go in and you're trying to continue to give and you're not physically nourished then it exponentially increases the risk for um, the physical I mean the emotional and uh, spiritual fatigue that you may have of your compassion so. that just accentuates you about taking care of yourself absolutely first. absolutely and that's where I think you have to forgive yourself 
Like I, I beat myself up for so long about dad's death because I was going daily and he was healthy, not healthy, but he was doing okay. You know, his house was clean, his feet were washed, his bandages were changed. He always had everything around his dialysis catheter was done with sterile technique. Everything was like as good as I could get it as a caregiver. And yet when I went to once a week, that's when I started to beat myself up. But, but physically, I was wearing out. And I knew that I had already lost two babies and I wasn't losing a third. So I, in the moments I felt selfish, but yet I had to be because I had to think about taking care of my physical body because if you give out, what do you have left? You have nothing left. And if I would have given out, then I wouldn't have been able to give the nourishment that my child needed. And y'all, let me tell you, that little girl, <laughs> she's my whole world. Her, her whole name in and of itself is, is a testimony to Christ because Hannah was buried in the Bible and cried out to God. And I wanted Hannah, you know, she got the, the prayer that she requested. God granted her, right, in Scripture. And so Hannah, my dad's name being Daniel Lee, the word Hanali, I believe it's in the Greek language, means grace. And so by God's grace through our faith, and that's her middle name, do we have her. And let me tell you, She's a little evangelist. She goes, she'll walk into Hobby Lobby and tell them, Jesus is going to save your world. <laughs> she, she tells her teacher, don't you worry if your back hurts, Miss Genoa. My Jesus will heal your back. <laughs> so, so God's grace is sufficient, and his mercy is new every day. And, uh, I mean, I know that sounds so cliche, but truly that's, that is how, because... I gave at work all day. Not only was I working as a nurse practitioner and giving and giving and giving, but I was teaching these same things to students in, nursing, in the nursing program I taught in and then walking out and having to do it at home at the same time. And it's that traumatic recollection. It's called secondary traumatic stress. And it's when you're constantly being reminded of something and you're experiencing it over and over and over again, both, both in personal, professional um, all your worlds and then they just collide and so I just honestly I, I know y'all probably feel the same way but I don't know how people do it without Christ I just don't I don't feel it's possible so other questions thank you so much for being you're very welcome <laughs>